most people think, you know, oh, circus performers are all daredevils or they all love travel. But the one common thing that I found is that we love being part of a community. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Sam and Dave join the circus, sort of. On today's episode, we meet Elsie Smith and Serenity Smith Fortune, identical twins and co-founders of the New England Center for Circus Arts. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber and David Bradbury, recording from the New England Center for Circus Arts in Brattleboro, Vermont. Hey guys, welcome. Hi, thanks Sam and Dave. Thanks for having us I here. I should say uh, welcome to us because we're on the road. First episode on the road. First Woo. episode on the road. Um, so big expectations for today. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having us here to the Cotton Mill in Brattleboro, which is I think Vermont's first incubator. So um, really great. Awesome. Well, we're really grateful that you guys were able to make the journey down to visit us. Yeah, smooth sailing. All right, so we'll just jump in. We know you guys are super busy. You got auditions and all kinds of stuff going on down here this week. Um, so, I mean, let's start from the beginning here. How did you guys get into the circus arts? I assume it started from a young age. It usually does. <laughs> well, actually, it didn't. Really? So, I'm. This is Elsie, and I'm going to do a lot of the speaking today because Serenity's voice is uh, a little scratchy today. Um, we actually got started when we were about 17 years old. We grew up in the middle of the woods with no running water and electricity, climbing trees and doing all sorts of things like that um, in Western Massachusetts. Me and, too. Yeah. Yeah. Go Western Massachusetts. Absolutely. Which is essentially Southern Vermont. Pretty much. Right. Same thing. Yeah. Um, so we got exposed to the circus through a vacation at Club Med. And got to try the flying trapeze. Woo! It was so awesome. It was terrifying. And then we went back to college, like good academic kids that we were. Um, and then we needed a summer job because, you know, you got to pay the bills somehow. And we found a summer camp that had a circus program. And we essentially apprenticed in the circus program. So within about two weeks, they taught us how to do trick roller skating, fire eating, tight wire, flying trapeze, Teeterboard. In two weeks? Well, you know, you sort of just learn a little bit, and then you teach it, and then you learn a little bit more, and then you teach it. And by the end of the summer, I guess we had a bit of an affinity to it, so we were doing okay. So that's really when you know if you're cut out for it or not. <laughs> exactly. I love the apprenticeship model because you really do sort of jump in 150%, and you really get to decide whether you want that lifestyle or not, um, rather than... I think some people go to college and they experience a career path, but they don't experience what the career really is. And with the way that we got into circus, we had to know right away whether we were passionate about the crazy lifestyle. And we were, and we never went back to college. And did you both arrive at that at the same time? Sort of. Um, we both really enjoyed the summer, but I had different obligations at home. So I actually went home after the summer and Serenity ended up running away and going to Ringling Brothers because they had an opening um, around Christmas time. One of the girls decided that it wasn't what she wanted. Uh, so they needed an aerial aerialist. And a friend of ours that we'd worked with over the summer gave Serenity a call and said, can you be in Las Vegas? Where did you do rehearsals? Florida. Florida. Can you be in Florida in three days? So Whoa. Serenity said, can you take over what I'm working on right now? And I said, yes. And she got on a plane and flew off to Florida and started her career as a circus performer. 
I have to ask you, uh, Serenity, is your voice hoarse because of the fire eating? Or is this just due to that cold everybody's been getting? Uh, not the fire eating, but I did get written up at college for fire eating in the girls' dorm. Don't tell anyone. Oh, that's uh, that's a resume. That's pretty, right? pretty badass. That's totally badass. Yeah. Um, and, and what is nimble arts? Can you just sort of describe that, please, and, and how that fits into where you're at today? Yeah. Um, Serenity and I, after Ringling Brothers and doing a whole bunch of other performing and touring around, including work with uh, Cirque du Soleil, uh, we decided to move back to the Brattleboro area because our father had moved to Guilford from Western Massachusetts. We needed to put together some sort of an umbrella under which to do our performing work when we weren't working for a big company like Cirque du Soleil. So we uh, did a little bit of research and discovered that you could put together an LLC and you know, get a joint bank account. And that's how Nimble Arts was born. Um, and it ended up being an umbrella for our performing work, but also for uh, the teaching that we started to do. So we started as teachers at the summer camp and always had a passion as teachers of circus arts. So it felt natural when we uh, finished up our touring career to go back to the teaching work. Um, and we were teaching all over the world, but made Brattleboro our tax address, basically. And, and do you recall the moment that you, you thought not only that you wanted to do this professionally, but that you could create your own business? Actually, no, I don't remember the moment that it came to me. It sort of was a slow growth thing where you, um, we were asked if we would teach a lesson. We taught a lesson. Then we were asked if we would teach a series of classes. It kind of grew from people requesting us to offer what we did. And then they liked it and wanted more. And it just snowballed. And at a certain point, we realized that it was bigger than what the two of us could do. And that's when we brought in other people to help us out with it. From a young age, though, we were, I think, mentored in the idea of small businesses because our father um, had his own small business. He worked for himself. He was a logger and then had a sawmill. Um, and, you know, from the age of 12, we were encouraged to have our own bank account and to, um, you know, during the summer work, uh, I worked with my brother cutting uh, laurel bushes mm -hmm. and making wreaths. Um, so that whole idea of uh, young people having bank accounts, having uh, accounting systems, working collaboratively towards a common goal, that was part of our background. So I think uh, even though we never thought, oh, hey, let's make a company, the process was always sort of on our radar that that's what people do. And it's not... Uh, a weird thing for someone who hasn't gone to business school to think about being a little bit more established. So not even with the thought of like, I'm going to make a business, but the thought of becoming a little bit more um, organized mm -hmm. with, like I said, checkbooks and QuickBooks and things like that. That was always sort of on our radar. And so how did, I don't, I'm, I'd just like some clarity around kind of Nimble Arts and NECA and how, if they're two separate things or sort of evolved from each other or, or what's that kind of breakdown? Um, in 2002 is when we moved to Brattleboro, Vermont, and that's when we started Nimble Arts. And after a few years, it became very clear to us that there were three things that we could not do as Nimble Arts. Mm -hmm. One of them was to further our goal of outreach within a community which is not something that you get paid for. It's a, it's a sort of generosity, but it's something that was very important to us. 
The second one was to build a building that could be a home for what we were offering. Um, at this point, we rent multiple studios and we wanted to be able to bring everything under one roof. Um, the third thing was the more we got involved in what we were doing and mentoring other people, we realized we wanted something that outlived us that could be here in two other years. So those things came to us um, and really uh, guided the move to change the teaching part of what we did into a not-for-profit model. And that's how the New England Center for Circus Arts came about. They're completely separate organizations at this point. They're not tied in terms of businesses at all. We are actually co-founders, but co-artistic directors. We work with a leadership team that runs the New England Center for Circus Arts. We're part of a group of people now. Awesome. So that's given, it sounds like that's given you guys a lot more flexibility to kind of build, a, build the programming and kind of expand those types of services and stuff. Can you guys talk a little bit about kind of what's under that NECA umbrella? Like what, you know, what types of classes and things? The New England Center for Circus Arts has a super wide variety of classes. It's actually sometimes really hard for us to explain in a short paragraph everything that we do. Yeah. Um, we have a professional training program that has over 50 people who come from all over the world to train to become professionals. So they move here in September and they're here for um, three years um, working on their material and they go off to work for Cirque du Soleil and Cirque Loise and Seven Fingers and European cabarets and things like that. But we also have an extensive uh, community program where there are school teachers mm -hmm. and lawyers and kids who are all taking classes just as their fitness or their, you know, hey, I've got a babysitter on a Tuesday night, so I'm going to go to the circus school and climb the fabrics. Um, we also work with outreach programs. So we have a large group of people that we work with all over the world who are um, disabled in some way. We think of it as being other-abled. So mm -hmm. um, for example, we brought a gal who'd we've been, we've been working with her for a long time, but she's a recent um, double amputee and she performed in our holiday show. And there was such a special moment of having this person who's trained her body and then her body failed her. Um, she got hypothermia and had to have uh, her legs amputated below the knees. But she's still a performing aerialist. And she got to share the stage with kids who are just local kids who are doing circus for fun and budding professionals. And the New England Center for Circus Arts, what its mission is, is about developing that community so everybody has a place and everybody can belong. Um, and it's a little bit of a struggle because the needs of professional artists are very different from the needs of a foster care kid or the needs of a, of a mom who's like trying to get back in shape. Um, but it's a struggle that we think is really worth it because that community is, it's a center for circus. It's a, it's a place that everybody can belong. And I think it's always, for me, circus has always been like such an inclusive community. I think that's sort of a, a big portion of it. So it only makes sense to have that sort of nonprofit benefit yeah and, and about how many f people come through the circus a, a year I, I i really don't i have no sense what the demand is or uh if you can meet demand even yeah um, we have about two thousand students who come through here every year what? Um, whoa that's my jaw dropping <laughs> uh, 
Amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't include, uh, you know, audience members who get to experience what we do at the Strolling at the Heifers every year and at various outdoor performances and events that we do. Those are the people who actually walk through our doors and take classes. And, and how many go on to, to do this professionally or, or as a part-time, mm -hmm. you know, professional, do you think? We have about 18 students who graduate every year from the professional training program. And I would say 90% of them are actively working in the field, um, you know, years after their graduation. And some of them are working as teachers because we have an extensive teacher training program as well. Some of them are working as performers. Most of them are probably doing both mm -hmm. um, because it's so physically demanding. It's hard to be a performer 100% of the time and in order to make ends meet when you're on break from performing usually you teach or you're connected to a studio it, and what sort of age uh you know I'm 50 am I like am I just done I can't touch my toes very well my <laughs> snowboard tricks are getting limited you can't touch your toes either that's awesome <laughs> I, I think you're just getting started just, actually oh, a great yeah, answer yeah. our youngest student is 18 months old that's when we start and that's oh. actually because of insurance reasons they have to wait till they're 18 months old but our oldest student right now is 87 so you've got your career in I, front I've, of you I've got a, a lifetime ahead of me and and I don't. I've got a quite. I find my sweet spot, right? <laughs> um, and then, what about a gender break breakdown? Mm -hmm. You know, is it skew one way or the other? Um, the circus is actually really interesting in terms of gender breakout because, uh, similar to gymnastics and dance, uh, girls tend to be uh, drawn to it at the younger age. At the high professional level, we've experienced a really interesting situation where it's very masculine. So if you go to see a Cirque du Soleil show or you see a Ringling Brothers shows, there'll be more men on stage than women. So that gender split is actually something that at a national level with the Lithuanian Youth Circus Organization and the American Circus Educators Association, uh, we're actually trying to address how to uh, bring women to a different stage of performing and change the expectations of what women can do on stage. One of the things that's actually happened this year and it happened by accident is we have an 11 woman team in our third year professional training program. So when those 11 women go on stage and create a show, they're gonna be creating a show that no matter what we do, it's gonna show off what women can do without having men on stage. So we're not choosing to push that gender uh, uh, topic in our show because we have other needs in the show that those women are going to do because they're showing off their solo acts, for example. But anybody watching in the audience is going to see that you can put together a full-on circus show without needing men. Part of what happens in our school is that we don't look at the age of the students when they apply for our professional training program, other than the fact whether they're under 18 or over 18. So, for example, if you wanted to apply to our professional training program, the only thing that I would see is what you're capable of and the fact that you're over the age of 18. So if you meet all of the needs of the program, you're in. I, I think I'd like to donate my spot to somebody else. <laughs> Just... I, I, I think, think that's, that's probably safer, best. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And yet I think you should come and fly on our trapeze when we open our new building July 1st. You can be the first person in line. Boom. Great. And we have to bring uh, Hunter uh, Hedenberg from our office, too, who's a, a, a rock climber and 
Um, we might we might do that. It's a great team building activity uh, yeah. because the thing about flying Ooh. trapeze is nobody in the team usually has ever done it. So you're all trying something totally brand new at the same time. And it actually makes a really great team building opportunity for kids and their families. So we work with like foster care families and at-risk kids and to watch the parents and the kids both go through this arguably terrifying but very safe experience together is amazing. And the other thing about circus is it's non-competitive. So it's not whether or not you can climb up the ladder faster or anything like that. It's really just about the experience. Yeah, I think our last team building exercise turned into bowling, and, and that didn't quite go very well. Honestly, Sam, do you want I don't to talk really about want to now? talk about it. So if we could just move on to the next question here. Hey, how crucial. Uh, I want to get back to, so, to you know, the entrepreneurial journey here. Um, how important was it to have a partner versus going it alone? in the early days when things were so uncertain and did you remember that there's elbows being thrown now for first day <laughs> let me answer that question um i think it's um the first thing that comes to mind is people ask us what it's like to be a twin i've always been a twin i've always worked with my partner so i'm not sure what it's like to not work with a partner but i can say that having someone to work with to bounce ideas off of to share things with is really, really helpful. And so whether it's a partner in the business or just a community mentor or someplace that you can get information that you really trust, that is really vital to starting a new business. Um, we early on got a lot of support through the Brattleboro Development Credit Corporation. Yeah, great, and we great actually, people. They're amazing. And we actually won the first um, business plan competition. They really reached out and asked us to be a part of it. And I'm incredibly grateful for that support that they gave us. And having a an organization or a team that you can reach out to for information is vital. Um, I am grateful for my twin sister, certainly. And having somebody else to work with was really good. But I think that you can find other community ways to find that kind of support as well. I think the emotional support and psychological support of having a partner is really important. We've ended up mentoring through our teacher training programs, a lot of people who are starting their own circus studios or aerial studios. And I always tell them to find someone that they can partner with. And as Serenity said, it doesn't have to be a business partner, but it does have to be someone that you can trust 100%. And that if your voice is gone, that they can do the <laughs> interview for you. Or if you just are having a week where you just can't face the music, someone else can be like, you know, I'm gonna stand up and I've got your back. Um, that because this is hard work. Life is hard. Being an entrepreneur is hard. And it's amazing. But having someone who can support you and sort of prop you up through the hard times is absolutely imperative. I've watched some people start businesses as a solo person, and I have no idea how they did it. Yeah, Only. Pretty, pretty impressive. Um, who was your first hire on the business side of things? On the business side of things an accountant 
Well, we had we had someone who came in and helped us with just registration and you know you know like money intake and who's in what classes and things like that. And it was actually my brother's girlfriend who was super super well organized and she was fabulous. Um, and she's still uh, a close member of the family. Uh, she babysits all the kids that uh, our staff have now, so she's uh, she helps on the childcare side of things. But having someone who could just be really organized and keep track of money in and money out. And then, as Trinity said, the next sort of more educated, trained hire was an accountant. Um, and I think one of the best things that we ever did going into this was uh, I had a little bit of background in QuickBooks um, from some of the other businesses that I was part of. And so we were able to have tracks of our records from the very beginning. And then this first hire was phenomenal. You didn't use a shoebox to just throw receipts in and worry no. about it in April? We never. We had been part of other organizations that used the shoebox. So we learned before we got started that the shoebox isn't necessarily the best way to go about things. Good. I think um, something that we had to really uh, pay attention to as we grew was the moments when we no longer were good at what needed to be done. Um, so for example, I used to design our website. And at a certain point, I had to admit that somebody else would be much better at that. Oh my and God, Serenity. <laughs> we need to like replay that like loop like five times, I think, yep. Yep. for our entrepreneurs. Totally. Yep. Totally. So marketing and a website, hire somebody who does a better Fake job. Fake it till you make point. it and then, mm -hmm. and then hand it off, yep. right? Totally. <laughs> that, was, that was the big one. And then a business manager was the other really big one. Because yeah. so I got to fake the QuickBooks until we made it and then I handed it off and I don't know anything about QuickBooks anymore. How That's many employees advice. do you guys have now? We have about 40 people who work for us. Wow. Um, they're not all, that's not full-time equivalents or anything. Right. One of the things about the circus that's interesting is it, it's a, uh, it's a flow through job scenario because the younger, more physically capable coaches who are just, you know, physically capable of doing heavy spotting, for example, they still have their performing careers. So being located in Brattleboro, we're midway between Montreal, New York, Boston, and, and the airport is really close. So a lot of our staff still have performing professional careers. So, you know, we have a gal who is just off in Japan with Cirque du Soleil um, and then comes back and teaches a couple classes and then goes off and does other things. So we have 40 people who flow through here on a pretty regular basis. And that kind of leads me to a question that I was meaning to ask you guys earlier, but didn't get to it. Like who, what kind of people join the circus? Like what, like, right? <laughs> what, I mean, what sort of chromosome do they have yeah, or, yeah. Or, or DNA strand that says the circus is for me? You know, I think one of the biggest things that I'm noticing about the circus people is they're people who really value a sense of community. The backstage support systems of being part of a community are what drive us. And I think that is the one common thing. Most people think, you know, oh, circus performers are all daredevils or they all love travel. But the one common thing that I found is that we love being part of a community. I would add to that that um, sort of a sense of diversity, just different people coming in and out of your lives is something that's really generally important to the people who are in the circus, whether they're in front or behind the scenes, that they actually thrive from a different people coming through their lives. They don't want the monochromatic life. The circus, there's an interesting article that I read about um, 
being embedded in Raposo in, I believe it's Afghanistan, and uh, Sebastian Younger, I think is the author, wrote about the, the quality of being part of a troop, that everybody has a job, everybody has a role in the army, um, or whatever the, this group particularly was. Um, in the circus, just like in these intense army situations, you know who's going to have your back when stuff starts to go bad. You know who's going to keep you safe. You know who's going to check the rigging. You know who's going to uh, make sure that the food gets served. This sense of community that also has a level of um, fear and uh, safety is uh, really makes for a firm, firm, strong family. And so if you tour with a group of people in the circus and then you might not see them for 20 years, you're still gonna get together and it's gonna be like you have a bond. Yeah, and it's like trust, it's a total big trust. trust. So that's the part of circus that I think people don't understand. They're like, oh, you're a daredevil, you're gonna jump off these crazy high things and do these crazy things. You are, but you're doing it because you feel safe with the people that you've put around you and circus actually is much safer than most people think you guys driving you're still down trying to get today. me to sign up i can totally tell <laughs> well you know what you guys driving sell. here today was so much more dangerous than any of the circus that we do here I'm sure just saying just saying well th and thank you for the warning <laughs> also just speaking of community i mean brattleboro is an awesome town and you know we're way up in burlington so we don't get down here nearly as often as we'd like it's your well, don't, loss do it not is our remind loss. my mother-in-law i'm sorry who, who lives now in west Dahmerston. and she's gonna fly in a trapeze right uh, that would be a great christmas gift <laughs> there you go uh but tell us a little bit about building your company in brattleboro and how the community has been kind of supporting you guys the community has been amazing here. Um, nobody has ever said, oh, you guys are weird circus people. What, <laughs> what are you doing in Brattleboro? Um, I don't know what it is about Brattleboro. I could surmise about the history of, of unusual people moving to town and being accepted by the community. Um, but we've only gotten really positive feedback from the community of Brattleboro. I think one of the reasons is because of the BDCC business plan competition that we actually as Trinity mentioned earlier, we, that we won. Because rather than being circus freaks who were trying to start a circus school, all of a sudden we had um, something that validated what we were trying to do in the community. And that was uh, a really big plus in our journey in Brattleboro. But Brattleboro has been embracing circus. It's fabulous. And circus isn't new in Vermont. We're not the first one. Circus Marcus, Wanderley's Big Top Adventures. There's tons of circus all over the state. And so... We are here, not because of those organizations, but our ability to be a valid part of the community. We're really uh, working on the history of these other organizations and we work very closely with them. And I think that the value of community in Brattleboro is incredibly strong. So we have a bunch of donors who um, work for other organizations and will come to us and say, hey, what you're doing is really neat. Why don't you bring it to the Boys and Girls Club? And so that we didn't have to reinvent the wheel of integrating into the community. We just established these relationships and friendships. So we have an amazing donor base of people who just really care about what we do and also have brilliant ideas about how we can add that into the fabric of Brattleboro, Vermont. Yeah, I wonder, it's a great uh, segue to maybe just 
tell us what the trapezium is going to be July 1st when it opens. Yep. Because that, that's pretty exciting. It's super exciting. And anybody who's run a business before knows that that's actually also really daunting. Um, you know, because we're circus people. Um, we're not builders. So we're trusting a whole bunch of people who are helping us with actually building the trapezium. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be open uh, by July 1st possibly even earlier because the project's going super, super well. Um, and it's going to be the sort of the nexus of circus in all of New England and all of the United States because it's the, the, the custom-built circus building. So we're going to have an in-ground trampoline, uh, trampoline wall, foam pits, sort of all the bells and whistles that are needed to um, help our students get to the peak of their performance opportunity. But these are also toys that are going to be available to all of the community members and things like that. Um, we have an indoor flying trapeze so that our flying trapeze program doesn't have to shut down when it snows every winter. Um, it can stay, you know, up in the air all winter long. Um, the other thing about the location that we found is it's still, it's in walking distance to downtown. So it still has that feeling of being a real integral part of... So it's on Putney Road. Road. It's on yeah. Putney Road, yeah. right across from the top of the Hill Grill. Um, and we're super excited about being close to some of the amenities that our students really need, like the hotels and things like that. Um, but there's, it's three acres, which for us is really important because it'll have a whole outdoor component, uh, similar to what Jacob's Pillow has, where we can have outdoor stages plus indoor stages, and that it's a really beautiful uh, Vermont feeling location because it's just off Putney Road, surrounded by trees. So it's got that feeling of like, wow, I'm still in Vermont. I'm not on a strip, for example. Um, so we're super, super excited about being there. It's more of an experience. July. Yes, it's an experience. It's yeah. an experience and it's a, a location, not just a building. Yeah. And can you guys talk a little bit about the kind of funding process for that and how, how that's been? The funding for the building has been a capital campaign project, mm -hmm. and we uh, set off with a, to raise $2.5 million, and we've raised $1.3 of that so far. Awesome. The building itself, uh, we're doing in two phases. The decision was based on two different things to go with a phase one and then a phase two. The first is that we are just busting out at the seams at our current location here at the Cotton Mill and at the gymnasium at the former Austin School for the Deaf that we also have. So we had this uh, urgent need to have a, a space. The other thing is that we found that a lot of the potential donors and the people in the community needed us to prove that we could actually do this. Um, the economy's been you know, a little bit up and down, and there's been a lot of projects that have been in the works that haven't necessarily come to fruition. So our donors sort of said, you know, hey, can you prove to us that you can actually do this? And so by having the first phase, um, we're proving to everybody that we can do this and giving ourselves a roof over our head that is desperately needed. But the uh, second phase um, is planned to include some additional studio spaces, so more intimate spaces for more creative work, and then to finish out the outdoor spaces for the outdoor stages, and then also more administrative you know, because the bigger you get, the more administrative space you need. So in terms of fundraising, we've had support from both local donors and uh, donors more in the New York area. 
um, and then some uh, donations that have come in from granting organizations like matching grants and things like that. So we're still in the, in the middle of that capital campaign because we're only 1.3 million through a 2.5 million fundraising. I also want to thank the, the uh, governor of Vermont as well. We received some building support from uh, the government as well, but also our local bank. So the Brattleboro Savings and Loan has been immensely supportive to bridge the gap of actually moving forward with building. Initially, we intended to raise all the money before we would start, and we realized as we moved along that we really needed to take a leap of faith. And our local banks uh, really helped us out with that, as well as the USDA and VITA also. Oh, so um, opportunities to engage with the funding that we have beyond just donor support was kind of a big gulp for us to go in that direction, but it was really important. And I think that's where we had to put on our business hat, not just our not-for-profit hat. And I'm really glad that we made that leap of faith, but it was terrifying. It, it, that's a really... Uh good point that you make that you, you know you do have to sharpen the pencils and put on how does this sustain itself over time and those organizations Vita they've been a longtime partner of, of VSETS and the Vermont Seed Capital Fund uh, local banks play a still an inordinate role mm -hmm. in you know 50,000 to a couple hundred thousand dollar loans at the right point in time and yeah. we see that across the spectrum whether you're a food company or a technology company um, and I think we're fortunate because they're our neighbors and we're all in this uh, small ship together in, mm -hmm. in, in many ways. Yeah. So I'm totally stealing this question from Dave, but I think it's really awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit. We have a couple minutes left here to talk about the future of the circus. Um, and one of those was how do you think virtual reality can kind of impact the industry? Have you thought about that at all? My 14-year-old definitely has. All right. Yes. My 14-year-old <laughs> has informed me that it is the future of everything. Absolutely. Um, I personally have no experience in it, and I, um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question except that actually doing circus is what is thrilling, and um, the physical... Uh, results that you feel and make you happy and inspire you are something that you have to actually do yourself. I don't think you can actually um, enjoy those benefits through a virtual portal. However, it is intriguing to see how the technology can interact with what we can do. Um, helmet cams um, or the little GoPros have been really fun to be able to share with people the visuals and the imagery of what we do. Um, but I don't think that it uh, will replace the experience of what we do. Totally. I mean, if it gets people excited about it and then they, uh, they want to come to school here, I guess that's good, right? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have a virtual reality uh, cluster at our Burlington facility of different folks teaching surgeons uh, processes uh, to different movies uh, that are being made and, and a few other applications. And it was more also from the, the consumer side. You know, how can I experience what you're doing in Brattleboro if I'm living in, in Dubai where you've done work? Mm -hmm. And th there's something, something going on there. And you know, for the artist, you still have to do it physically and, and, and be present. Um, but how you distribute the work, I mean, particularly, I mean, the most saddest thing about wonderful performing arts is when it doesn't get shared and seen. Yeah. And 
I don't know where the line is uh, for, for the next phase of things. Well, that's an interesting question. As an artist, the work that we do is in the moment. Um, and as a live performance, it is then gone afterwards. So we uh, do value the integration with other methods of recording and sharing what we do. So if I do a performance on stage, it could be gone. It is gone in the next moment. And yet we can uh, coordinate and connect with other technologies to record and share that in different ways. And I'd be really curious to understand how virtual reality might integrate more. Um, definitely a new place to Invite somebody <laughs> in for the summer when you get this open, yeah. just, to, just to test. I, I don't know what can. it is. I mean, again, the, the magic of live theater, live performance, it, you can't replicate it. Yeah. That shared experience, but uh, uh, there'll be folks trying with different business models uh, and the and the rest. Mm -hmm. We had to ask a technology question because that's sort of our slant, right? Totally. Well, the part of technology that we're actually struggling with as a uh, community right now is more the video, like the YouTube and video sharing. Because, yes, what we do is safe, but it's also made much safer if you're learning it with a coach who can spot you, hold you up, make sure that you're using your joints in safe ways. But because there's so much uh, video technology, as I said, on the Internet and things like that, people are trying to teach themselves. And so when they finally do make it in our doors, we are uh, dealing with injuries, chronic injuries sometimes, because people have learned it incorrectly. Um, we're also, uh, you know, people are struggling a lot more because they're not going back and getting a teacher to help them. So part of the technology side of, of what our, our community is working with is how to do things like uh, Skyped in classes where a coach might not be able to put their hands on a student and actually help them through the skill, but can at least guide them through part of the process. It's not as good as being in the room as a coach, but not everybody is near a circus school. Well, not to mention just the benefits of bringing people into Brattleboro, you know, like I'm sure it also impacts the economy to have your students come here for three years. Yep. We actually did some uh, quick number crunching and I think I came up with the idea that about $200,000 a year is what our students are putting back into the economy just in rent. <laughs> wow. So that's not their parents coming to see the show and buying, you know, right. a meal at the local restaurant. That's just in rent. But we've also heard from a lot of the local restaurants and employers that they really like employing circus people. Um, the restaurants like the hard work and the uh, energy of our students that come in and help as servers and bartenders. Of course, when we do shows, we have a big fundraiser coming up next weekend, our Circus Spectacular. We'll have hundreds of people coming in. They'll stay in hotels. They'll buy meals. They'll probably go in buy some knickknacks to bring back to their friends. So the trickle down of an arts economy is really hard to measure, but it's clearly happening. Totally. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to kind of end with our, our special magic wand question. Oh, I'm so excited. And I we, want the magic wand question. Yeah, we're totally going to give both of you an opportunity to answer, but I'd, I'd love to it let Dave ask It can't be the same answer, one. though, because that would be like stereotypical. So two different answers, please. Yes, different answers. Dave, please. Because you stole my question. Okay. Um, okay, magic wand time. Okay. If you could change one thing in Vermont, what would you change? Health insurance. Boom. She stole my answer. Oh, come on. Um, 
Wow. Could be anything. Could be anything. Well, I was going to say the snow day last week was kind of tricky, so maybe a little bit more predictability in the weather. Hmm. But I don't think that's really a great answer. It's your answer. I think we could all use a little predictability in the weather. I'm okay with that answer. Um, predictability in weather and predictability in health insurance. Just more predictability, so predictability kind of over, overall. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I did come up with a better answer. Okay. Um, I think diversity. Um, we do bring in a huge amount of diversity with our students. My family, myself, um, we changed the demographic of the town. Um, but... Uh, beyond Brattleboro, diversity is a real challenge for us. We have a lot of our coaches and our students who come, and they love it here. They love Brattleboro, but they find that um, gender uh, diversity would be really helpful for them to feel more comfortable. Uh, so Vermont, though it is incredibly liberal and a wonderful place to live, does need to pay attention to the fact that there needs to be some um, attention paid to diversity and all levels, especially given our current political climate. Great answer. Great answer. We, and one we heard recently from uh, Allison Hooper, too, mm. uh, Vermont Creamery around diversity. And um, Do you ever say the show must go on? That's a very interesting question because I know uh, that's sort of a, a, a cliche about circus. We, as an educational institution, actually don't say that the show must go on because uh, we train our students that if they ever feel unsafe, um, no matter where they are, that they can actually stop the show. And we've done that at Cirque du Soleil. We were in the middle of a show and something didn't feel right with the rigging and we did a little bit of a bow when we came down and we walked off stage. And that was okay. The, The big show obviously will always go on, but we always have to make really clear decisions about our own personal safety. Right. The priorities were right and, and, and exactly. you knew that the the managers and your coworkers had your, your back and faith that you exactly. could make that decision. And I think that's something for as business owners as well. I have struggled with the idea that you always have to get bigger. Like that's the American thing, right? That you're always supposed to be moving forward and doing the next big thing. It's the Sim City model. Mm. And I think the show doesn't actually have to go on. It might go on on a smaller level. If you as an entrepreneur are perfectly happy with the size of your business and the way that your business runs, keep doing it that way. Don't let people push you into getting bigger just because that's what businesses are supposed to do. Do what works for you. Great advice. Great advice. This has been Start Here with Sam and Dave, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. This series was made possible by the Vermont Technology Council and Fairpoint Communications. Follow us at VCET, that's V-C-E-T. Thanks for listening and let's get back to work.